Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is good to be back. We, uh, we didn't get quite down to the Gulf of Mexico. But we were in Georgia. Excuse me while I play around with this stuff. Probably should put that out there where I might not hit it. Or, well, good luck, folks. Just be warned, I probably I may smack the microphone because I can't talk without using my hands. They're directly connected to my vocal cords. <laughs> oh. While we were gone, um, two anniversaries came up on my uh, on my calendar on September the fifteenth. Uh, I was reminded it was the 30th anniversary of my first Sunday as the pastor of the Bay City Wesleyan Church. Woo! Woo yeah. I don't know how I can be that old. Then I move and then I'm reminded, yeah, you're that old. Uh, and then uh, on the 16th, who was reminded that it was the anniversary, uh, not that I really needed to be reminded, but it was the anniversary of my mother uh, passing away. Uh, one of the lessons my mother tried to teach me, <laughs> well, I'm still working on it, uh, and, and in some ways it was a lesson she had to learn from me. Uh, it's kind of a two-way street. As a, summed up by uh, doctors uh, uh, Henry Cloud and uh, John Townsend. And it, they said, it, put it this way, it's easy to say that we love others, but difficult to allow them the freedom inherent, inherent in love. We withdraw, feel resentful, and send guilt messages and attempt to control those who do things against our wishes. These actions kill freedom and will, and they eventually kill love. Love cannot exist without freedom, and freedom cannot exist without responsibility. You must own and take responsibility for what is yours, and that includes your disappointment in not getting everything you want from another person. The disappointment that comes from our loved ones exercising their freedom is our responsibility. We must deal with it. This is the only way to keep love alive. 
mom tried to teach that to me as I tried to teach her that because I was the one that was the Well, there was a guy named Dr. James Dobson. Some of you remember him. He wrote a book called The Strong-Willed Child. I read it as an adult and thought it was my autobiography. Um, my parents probably read it and thought, that's Mark. Uh, it is impossible to control another person's decisions. Sorry. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Uh, I'm trying to remember that, though. Sometimes I forget. That's why I say, uh, my mom tried to teach me that. As I looked around at Okay, I, I was raised in the church. No way, no two ways about that. So I've been around church people all my life. And so I've learned to watch. I like watching people, all kinds of people, but I've watched church people a lot. Uh, and I've watched uh, church people a lot over the last uh, 50 <laughs> <laughs> And, 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 and I've noticed that I'm not always uh, sure we've known what we were doing. Um, Bishop Anthony, guy didn't I'm just introducing this guy to you because I just heard of him this week. Is Bishop Anthony, uh, he had a last name that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Bishop Anthony, a guy that the Russian Orthodox churches die diocese for Great Britain and Ireland. I had no idea that the Russian Orthodox Church had a diocese in my homeland. But they do. And they have a bishop over it, apparently. Uh, as a bishop, he became well-known as a pastor, preacher, spiritual director, and writer on prayer and the Christian life. And in one of his lectures, he says this, it seems to me that the church must never speak from a position of strength. It ought not to be one of the forces influencing this or that state. The church ought to be, if you will, will just as powerless as God who does not coerce but calls and invites the beauty and truth of things without imposing them. As soon as the church begins to exercise power, it loses its most profound characteristic, which is divine love. And it loses the understanding of those it is called to save and not to smash. Whoa. When I read that, I looked at the last 50 years and I thought, well, 
We've been doing exactly what he said we shouldn't have been doing. We've been trying and everything my mom told us, told me, and everything Dr. Henry Cloud and, and, and John Townsend said, love isn't. We've been trying to make everybody else behave the way we think they ought to behave. We've been trying to smash them instead of save them with God's love. Now some of you, I don't know, I, I've read this statement about God being powerless several times and I get caught on it every time, but in case, let, let me just stop for a moment, in case you get stuck on God being powerless, we're in a Protestant church, so it, it's, it's hard for us to catch that, but imagine yourself in a Catholic church and there's a crucifix on the front wall. I think that's one of the reasons our, 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 our Catholic brothers and sisters keep a crucifix around. It's to remind us that our God can choose to be powerless. So when we start the morning services and I say, Jesus takes the worst this world has to dish out and overcomes it, I don't know what's in your mind. But what's in my mind is Jesus nailed to a cross. That's a picture of power less. Not that he couldn't have prevented that, it's that he didn't and he chose not to. My friends, Ben Thomas says, every second we Christians spend on fighting a culture war over whatever issue we think is the most important, and there are a lot of important issues. I'm not, he and I both would tell you it's not that these aren't important, but every time we, every second we spend fighting a culture war over whatever issue we think is the most important is a second we as Christians have been success, successfully distracted from the first call to love, like Jesus. Distraction is a more frequently used tactic of our enemy than any other. The enemy can get us Thinking, oh, we got to do this. We got to fix this. We got to fix that. We got to fix them. We got to, we got to, we got to, we got to, we got to. First thing we need to do is stop whenever we feel like we have to do something and start asking ourselves, what is it Jesus said? <clears throat> what did Jesus say we needed to do? Now, I'm, I'm going to reference a song that some of you may know, have heard. Some of you may not. I don't know. Some of you may think I'm strange for referencing it. 
No. Well, it wasn't done by the Gaithers, so it, it was done by a group called Foreigner. <laughs> Some of you are going, I know who they are. Yeah, it's a rock band. Uh, the title of the song is I Want to Know What Love Is. And I'm just going to, this is from the, some of you are going to start singing it because it's a very, it's, it's been a popular song since 1984 when they released it. Uh, in my life, it, they say there, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. That song reached number one in both the United Kingdom and the U.S. and continued to be a fixture on the charts for nearly two decades. It's listed as one of the top 500 greatest songs of all time. Maybe not on your list, but it came back uh, and Billboard listed on the hot uh, adult contemporary list uh, of top 25 songs in 2000, 2001, and 2002. 20 years after it had been released. There was, I, there was a list, when I looked it up, there was a list of person, band after band after who had done their own version of it. I want to know what love is. I want to know what love is. A friend of mine said this, the final answer to that inquiry, that desire of that song, I want to know what love is, is not in some specific words, but in a story and an image. Jesus on the cross. If you really want to know what love is, You look at Good Friday, Jesus. The Son of God hanging on a cross showing us how much God loves each and every one of us. Not some of us, not most of us, all of us. Even two thieves who were next to him, even the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross, even the disciples who had deserted him, even the religious authorities who were mocking him, all of us. You want to know what love is? look at Jesus on the cross. That's the answer. I want to know what love is? Let me tell you about Jesus.
We heard the same concept in one of the Bible readings we heard earlier. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now this raises a challenging this cha challenging concern for those of us who, who follow Jesus. We must show, not just tell, those who don't know the story of the cross what love is. I mean, it's one thing to say, let me tell you about Jesus, but it is a completely different thing to say, let me show you what Jesus is like. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How well are we showing Jesus' love? How well are we showing those who don't know him what love really is? How well are we showing them what love is? Well, is that really important? Well, I'm glad you asked. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Through verse 34. We're in the last few days of Jesus' life. He's on the hot seat in the temple. Okay, not, well, I don't suppose they literally had a hot seat, but everybody's asking Jesus questions. The religious authorities are trying to get him in trouble. They're trying to corner him. For, for quite a while, they've been looking for a reason to get rid of him. <laughs> And every time they ask him a question, every time they've tried to trap him, he has had an answer and he gets out of it. And finally, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them, the other authorities, religious authorities, debating with Jesus and noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer. It says he asked him, I'm going to pause for a moment. One of the first things you notice about this is that he's not asking. It says he asked him. He doesn't say he tried to trap him. <clears throat> One of the teachers of the law came and asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Yeah, in that day, there were they had list a list of over six hundred commandments that they had developed from the laws that Moses had given them and from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, over 600 commandments. This guy was a teacher of the law. I think he was a lawyer. Well, I think that's another way of saying it. And he comes, which one of these 600 plus rules is the most important one? And 
Jesus answered, the most important one is this, and every Jewish person can tell you this to this day, this is the most important. This is like the Apostles' Creed for the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second, Jesus says, is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is, catch this, there is no commandment greater than these. Well said, the teacher replied. Now, I've watched way too much TV growing up. I used to watch The Family Feud growing up. When I see those words, well said, teacher, I see a whole family of people going, good answer, good answer, good answer. Sorry. If you can't have fun reading the Bible, let me help you. <laughs> he's a, he's a, well said, teacher, you are right in saying that God is one. There is no other but him, to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. They are in the temple, the place where burnt offerings and sacrifices are made. And he says, you are right. Loving God with all that we are and our neighbor as ourselves is more important than everything that goes on in this place. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any questions. What is the most important commandment? Jesus said, there is no commandment greater than these. The two commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The teacher who had asked the question, the lawyer that asked the question said, you're right, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt sacrifices and offer, burnt offerings and sacrifices that are offered in this place. In another place, Jesus said, all the law and the prophets, that's like the entire first part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The apostle Paul said the commandments are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Which is the greatest? What is the greatest commandment? What is it that Jesus tells us we're supposed to be doing? Jesus gave us two rules for life. They are his cure for all the pain in the world. To love God and love each other as I do.
That's what he says. Our problem is we don't stop and ask him what love is. We just assume we know. And that's a mistake. When Jesus talks about love, when these <laughs> commands talk about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, or loving people as Jesus loves us, it's talking about love that is primarily giving, a love that is primarily acting, that is acting first. And that leads to feeling, not feeling first. We tend to think of love as warm, gushy feelings, or at least neutral. I mean, I don't want them to die, so I must love them, right? I just wish they'd go away. No. That's not the way it works. So, how does it work? Well, here's a practical example from Jesus. From Jesus and what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, love your enemy is not hyperbole. That's a big fancy word. My dad taught that to me when I was a kid. Hyperbole means exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. It means saying something so big that you, everybody knows that you really don't mean it, but you're just emphasizing a point. Jesus is not saying love your enemies just to emphasize the point that you're supposed to love a lot of people. It's not a figure of speech. It's not a clever figure of speech. He literally means love your enemies. If they hate you, that's their problem. You still have to love them. They want to kill you, that's their problem. You have to love them. Or maybe, maybe I should say you get to love them. I don't think it sounds any better that way. See, the defining commandment of our relationship, the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom family of God, the, in our relationship with Jesus, the defining commandment is Love your enemies. Now, people are going to say, but isn't that a hard teaching? To which I would say, no, it's not hard. It's impossible. 
It's not normal. But it's Jesus. It's what Jesus says. See, we're in a dynamic relationship with Jesus in which we are transformed, rescued and reconciled and filled by the Holy Spirit with Jesus' holy love. Not some kind of love that we can generate, not some kind of warm, gushy feelings. But it doesn't stop with us being changed. His love for us creates first love for him and it gives birth to love for others. A devoted love for our neighbors and our enemies. few weeks ago, you didn't see me, but I was attending this service when Pastor Dale Freed talked about forgiveness. And he shared the story of Corey Tim Boone coming face to face with a guard from the concentration camp, the Nazi guard from the concentration camp where her sister died. Where they had been abused, misused, And she shared the miraculous story of how God helped her forgive her brother in Christ now. And she could love her enemy. If you didn't see that, that was, you can look it up on YouTube or on the Facebook, that was September I don't know. <laughs> I had it. I had it a moment ago. I think it was the tenth. <laughs> September tenth. Okay, September tenth. Other people have confirmed it. Uh, at least if I'm wrong, I'm wrong with company. Uh, September tenth. Love your enemies. It is miraculously possible. But it is not humanly possible. These words from Jesus seem ridiculous in this world that we live in. Which is why we desperately need them. It's why our world desperately needs them. And the future belongs to the followers of Jesus who live them out. How do we do it? How do we do it? How can we love our enemies? Well, Jesus gave us a real practical um, first step. Pray for them. 
and remember that prayer is more than talking. Prayer is also listening. So in prayer, we give our burdens to Jesus, and we, you know, we probably need to unload all the things that they've done to us and all the ways that they've hurt us and all the ways that they've disappointed us. And all, not that he doesn't know already, but sometimes we need to unload that. But then we need to stop and listen. And as we listen, Pastor Matt Leroy says, as we listen, Jesus starts to give his burdens to us. He will begin to show us how he sees that person. And we'll begin to pull back the curtain on our issues as well. And he said, finally, prayer for our enemies cultivates holy love for our enemies, which actually destroys our enemies. Because once you begin to pray for them and in turn begin to love them, then they're no longer your enemy. Jesus, you gave us two rules. They're really easy to say. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor, including your enemies, as yourself. You set an example for us. When you went to the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One moment, the, one, the thieves next to you was cussing you, cursing you, and mocking you, and the next he asked you to remember him, and you didn't give him a hard time. You didn't say, well, yeah, but no, not after the way you've been talking to me. You just said, yes, you're going to be with me. can't do that. We want to know what love is. Not just because we know the story but because we've experienced the story again on a much deeper level than we've ever experienced it. We want to stand at the foot of your cross and we want to hear you say to us, we want to hear you say to the Father about us, Father, forgive them. When hear you say, I will remember you. You're going to be with me. We 
want your Holy Spirit to fill us so full of your love that the only thing that splashes out of us when people bump us is you. so deep into your love that you change us completely. So that you can use us to change this world that so desperately needs to be remade. Father, change us and change the world. Those of you who are online, thank you for connecting with us. If you have not already joined the Champions of Hope on uh, Facebook, our Facebook group, uh, please feel free to do that. The link for that is in the description of the event. We'd love to connect with you that way. And for all of us, online and on site, this time of worship is over. But our work has just begun. We are sent, but we are not alone. Go with King Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to love like him.